Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning here. We're, uh, since I've been doing the weather every week, I might as well continue this morning. Uh, nice to see summer back, isn't it? I don't know, but we, yesterday Carol and I uh, took a many-hour hike along Cedar Beach, and oh, it felt so wonderful to again to feel those 85-degree rays coming back here before uh, we lose it. I think tomorrow's fall, first day of fall. Yeah, so enjoy it now. And you people who love the cold weather, I don't get it, but uh, that's okay. That's a, you know what always amazed me? People actually pay a lot of money to go up north where it's cold and snowy. Who would take their money and do that? I, always, I, I don't understand that. Why would you pay to go to the snow? And ski through there. I, I, I don't understand it, but I know Keith Anderson especially, you know, he loves it. He loves it. God bless him. <laughs> I'll stay by the fire. <laughs> okay. We have been in 1 John, the letter of 1 John, a letter written by the Apostle John himself, one of Jesus' twelve, a special group of men that he called to himself he spent three years with Jesus, day and night, except for when they went out on a couple missionary journeys. He watched Jesus, he heard Jesus, ate with Jesus. Then he watched when he was crucified. He was buried, and then he saw him when he rose. That's When, when we read this letter of 1 John, we're reading the words of somebody firsthand, eyewitnesses. You know, the power that that has. How powerful is, a, is an eyewitness in a courtroom when somebody says, I saw it's that man. He's the one who did it. That's a powerful testimony. If you get a couple people to do that, wow. Well, that's what we're reading. When we read of 1 John, we're reading a man who saw Christ who saw him die for our sins, who saw he was buried, and they saw him resurrected with a glorified body. And then they watched him as he ascended to heaven 40 days later. This man has authority in his words. When we read this, these are the words inspired by God, as the Bible tells us, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's not... These are not uh, the words of some wise men. These are the words of God. And I hope every time we open up the Bible, we realize that that is the word, the truth of God speaking to our hearts. And as believers, we have the Holy Spirit who opens up those words before us. He shows us our heart. Like that. It says that the word in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active. It says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Who can do that? We don't know our own hearts. Are you ever surprised sometimes what pops up into your mind from your heart? I am. It's like, oh God, where did that come from? Wow. Which I, I shouldn't be surprised because as much as the Lord has saved me and given me a new heart, 
The old man is still there. It says that we are going to struggle with sin throughout this life. There's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Don't believe me? Read Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Read Paul in Romans 7, how he tells us that. That there is this part of us that wants God and delights in God, and yet there's this other part of us, the fleshly part of us, that wants to gratify the, the sinful nature. So it's a battle. Well, this man, John, is writing to us, and he's writing to that church I told you about. It's about A.D. 90. It's about 60 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, approximately. The world has been turned upside down by the gospel. Read the, the book of Acts. And yet, the world is also coming down and persecuting. The world leaders are coming down hard on this, this incredible movement of people who are believers of Jesus Christ. This group of people who have goodness and love in their hearts. They're not that strong of the Roman Empire where it's brute force enforces. They see love. In fact, in uh, around 100 A.D., a man named Justin Martyr. They call him Justin Martyr. He's actually Justin the Martyr. Martyr isn't his second name. Justin was a martyr. He wrote the Apologia, the Apologia. And it's, what is it? It's an apology or it's a reasonable explanation taking the facts of the faith and presenting them. He wrote it to the emperor to say Christians are good people. Look, and he gives all the exam. You know, basically, they follow the speed limits. They stop at the signs when they're supposed to. They're faithful to their wives. They don't cheat. They don't steal. They don't murder. And he was giving an, an apology, a reasonable defense of the Christian faith to him like that. And yet, in spite of that, people, the, the world was coming against it. And that's where John, if you remember, talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. And we said it's not, we're not talking about the end time Antichrist who comes during the book of Revelation at that end of the world, but the Antichrist spirit of those who are against Jesus Christ. And that includes everyone who is not a Christian, John says. If you're either in the family of God or you're an Antichrist, he says. Now, he's not saying that, that we should be angry at them, we should hate them. No, we should love them. In fact, that's what we're going to look at, that this, today's section is all about love when we, do, when we look at this. But John is writing to a church now, and the most dangerous, more dangerous than the world coming down on the church, was those who claimed to be believers and were teaching false doctrines. Because what that does is the world tries to come down like a of put pressure on the church and make us submit and give up. But what these false teachers do is come in like a virus and they teach lies and let it erode and we can break apart from the inside. And these men, what they were doing, we said, were, were teaching false doctrines about Jesus about the Christian life. And what does John do? This, this book is a test. He's trying to show them, put the tests of what a Christian is. He's giving them the moral tests 
of what a Christian is. And he's saying, compare this to those teachers. Do you see the qualities, the characteristics of a Christian in these men? And he already gave that, that moral test of obedience in chapter 1. He says, those who are in Christ, who are true Christians, obey God's word because they love the Lord. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commands. Obedience to the word of God is a sign of love for God. You know, think about if you, when you, with your parents. Did you always just do what your parents said because you were afraid of punishment? Or did there come a time in your life when you did what your parents said because you loved them and you wouldn't want to hurt them? I always remember that when my dad let me use his car when I first got my license and I was going out on dates. And I remember I, he'd give me his car and... It, I know it sounds like the typical story, but we did not have a lot of money. We lived from hand to mouth, basically. And he had an old 62 Fairlane 500 with, you know, way over 100,000. In those days, when a car had 100,000 on it, it was starting to, you know, it was ready for a valve job, and the, the, the rings would start le leaking oil, and, you know, it wouldn't run the best. But, and he traveled every day uh, way deep into Nassau County. And I remember he'd give me the keys to the car and he'd smile at me and he'd say, don't mess up my car, boy. He used to call, and he'd say it with affection when he called me, boy, he'd say, boy, don't mess up my car, I need it. And I would drive that car so carefully, not because I was afraid of my dad, because I loved him so much. And I wanted to do what his request was, because if I messed his car up, it would hurt him ultimately in his job and getting to where he had to go. And that's the, way, that's the way it should be with obedience. We should obey God because we don't want to go against him, because we love him. And we should be careful and ask ourselves, when we sin, obviously I love my sin more than I love God. If I loved God more than my sin, I'd, do, I'd obey God and I'd do what he wants me to do. And, but John talks about obedience and he's and he's making the comparison that do these men that claim to have this secret knowledge that we didn't get from the apostles to be saved and be right with God do these men are they obeying the law of God and the answer would be no they're not following the laws the apostolic laws that were handed down or the, law, the words of the Beatitudes from Christ, they weren't doing it. There was no obedience. And then John talked, gave him that, that moral test of righteousness, of doing what's right. And we, we looked at that about three weeks ago and he said, do you see righteousness in their life or do you see sin? And John makes the point, he says, the one who is righteous does not sin. And if we say we're righteous, we're literally a liar. He said either, are they living a righteous life or are they living a sinful life? So he gives them that moral test of righteousness. Well, today we're going to look at the moral test of love that John talks about with them. And John, basically what he's saying is, I'm going to talk about love now. And it's the purpose is to say, this 
This is what's happening in, in the believers in the church, but is those false teachers who are coming, are they showing this love that, that is biblical? That's the way, you know, ultimately it's what? The proof is in the pudding, you know, as they say. You know, your life, as Sid Williams liked to say, our life is more powerful than our words. And that's true in a sense. I can say I love Jesus, but when I'm acting in love, that's powerful. You know, words are powerful. The, the words can be powerful, but think of how much more powerful they are when you see somebody actually doing it. Okay. Uh, we're going to go to chapter 3. And what I'm going to do, hopefully quickly, <laughs> I've said that before, but uh, in chapter 3, I want to start, today we're looking at verses 11 to 18. And in these verses, if you looked at the bulletin, I did have a title for it. It's a continuation. If you remember, a few weeks ago, I did an introduction. An introduction to the mar love, the mark of a Christian. And that is, ultimately, the mark of a true Christian is, is there, the presence of love. That is the most powerful marker to know a Christian. Of a, and remember what we said that love is. It's not a worldly love. It's not the eros love, the, the physical, attractive kind of love. It's not the phileo, the, the brotherly type of love. It's not the storge love that the Greek words use that for a parental or a protective type of love. It's agape or agape. It's that self-sacrificing love. And where do we see it the greatest? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish and have eternal life. It's that giving. It's being willing to put your physical, spiritual, and emotional needs above my own. That's not easy, is it? Because we really love ourselves. When, when, when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, I love, I've heard people say, well, God is telling us that we first have to love ourselves. No. What he's saying is, you guys love yourselves. Love others that way. You know, I don't have a problem loving the person I see in the mirror every morning. As hard as that might seem to some of you, for me it's easy. You know, but at the same time, it's, can I have that same type of care and love for myself and show that to others, that gets a little tough sometimes, especially when people are difficult. <laughs> Take the difficult person and try to do that with. It's not so easy. But it's what we're commanded to do. And who do we have? We have the help of the Word of God and what? The Holy Spirit. Remember we said the, the last time, I think we were talking about love, you know, the idea of being a born-again Christian is a redundant statement. Either you're, you're, what you're saying is if you're born again, you're a Christian, and you're a Christian, so you're a Christian Christian. You, if you're born again, you are a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you are born again, meaning born above. That word got so uh, misused by people, especially back in the, the 70s and 80s. People would say, are you a born again Christian? And you know, you get the, like these weird people coming up to you saying that, and it was like it was almost a, a, a trendy kind of thing to be oh I'm a born again I'm a born again 
and you wouldn't see any fruit in that. You know, and that's how do you how do you determine what a tree is, Jesus says? By its fruit. And that's what John is talking about today. Fruit, love as a fruit, a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians. For the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I said the last time that some actually believe that the fruit of the Spirit is actually love. And then the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness are just all the characteristics of the fruit of love, ultimately. Okay. What I want to do is point you that we're going to look at verses 11 to 18, but I want to point you to verse 7 for a minute to go back. Because to see what John is doing here, look at verse 7. Who do you think this is addressed to? What, what issue do you think he's addressed to? Remember, John's writing this letter because there were issues in the church. These false teachers. The main issue is the false teachers. And if you remember, you want to learn the key verse, it's chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Because their world was turned upside down. They see people leaving the church after these teachers and it's like, maybe we're not saved. And John reminds them, look, you have these qualities. These are the qualities of a Christian. You have them. He says in verse 7 of chapter 3 of 1 John, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. See, he's directing this again. He's saying, those false teachers, don't listen. Don't fall for their nonsense. Don't fall. You stick to the apostolic truth, he's saying. Don't, don't vary from that. Someone once said what? Anything new is not true, and anything true is not new, or some kind of statement like that. Get the idea that truth is eternal, and it's solid, and you, you can't add things. You might, uh, how can I put it? You, might, you, you have to be careful when you take a truth like that salvation is by grace alone, and then say, but you also have to do this and that. Wait a minute. Okay. Now you're adding to the truth. You don't do that. Salvation is by grace alone, period. You stop right there. You don't add. Or like the Galatian church, uh, remember the idea of Judaizers coming and people saying, well, you have to have the Christian faith, but you also have to follow the laws and you have to be circumcised. You know, what did Paul say in... Uh, I can remember in Galatians 5, 6. Uh, I can't remember what he said. But it was good. I want to tell you it was good. No, he says, uh, in, Christ, in, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. He says, has no value. That's what he says. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has no value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, ultimately. You know, all that other stuff, it gets down to one thing. It's faith, and it expresses itself through love. It's not all the other extras that are added on there. So he says in verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. 
just as he, meaning Christ, is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Who do you think he's pointing to? Those teachers. He's saying, these guys aren't righteous. They're of the devil. They're not God's children. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So these guys who are, are speaking this, he's saying, are from the devil. They're basically the, the opposite of what Christ came for. The very thing Christ came for is to denounce and to destroy the works that these people are trying to do. He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin, not meaning perfection, but your overall pattern of life. We're not perfect. There's no Christian perfection while we're in this body. There is in heaven. That's going to be good, <laughs> I'm telling you. It's going to be nice not to have to deal with that stuff. And, but in the meantime... It's the pattern of our life. Is our life moving toward uh, obedience to God? Or is it, I'm still moving toward my own agenda, gratifying the desires of my sinful nature? And it's like, oh, it's a part of life. No, we should be repenting for those things. So no one who is born of God will continue to sin. They're not going to have a pattern of constant sinning. He says, because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God, where he says it's God's seed, the, the Greek word is sperma, and we get sperm from that. And what he's doing is basically saying, you've been born again, you've been born from above, you've been born of God now, he says. That spiritual uh, miracle that took place in your heart, and that is salvation is a miracle, it's a supernatural act where God changes your heart, and he's saying, you're God's seed now, the same way a father would pass on his characteristics through the sperm and reproduction while he's saying you're born of God now and you have God's seed in you. You have the characteristics of, of, of a godly person now. He says, and born of God, he says, being born again. He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone, now watch this because he's going to transition to our, our right where we're going to be today. He says, Anyone who does not do what is right, this is what we already talked about two weeks ago, anyone who is right is not a child of God. He's talking about righteousness. He says, these people don't have righteousness in their lives. They're not living right, good lives, he says. They're not born of God. But then he uses the next moral test. He says, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So he's marking it here that love is the mark of a Christian again here this is the the next moral test he's already talked about obedience in chapter one he's just got done talking about the moral test of righteousness now he's saying the next test is love he says this is the message in verse 11 I am this is the message you heard from the beginning okay the beginning of the gospel 60 years ago. This is the message that the apostolic message, this is the message that those who were with Jesus Christ took and brought to the world. Read the book of Acts. Look how Paul and Peter and John and these men just went and traveled to spread the gospel. The real gospel. The gospel that they themselves experienced with Christ. These are the first, first-hand witnesses. He's saying, go back to that message. 
He says, not this new message that's being brought. He says, no, that's the false. They're, they're saying things that aren't true. And how do you do it? And look at their lives. They have no righteousness, he said, in their lives. They have no obedience in their lives. And now he's going to say today, and they have no love. He says, in, uh, continuing, we should love one another. That's the message from the beginning. We should love one another another he says that's the the stamp and mark of a christian is love and what is that love love for god love for others again we get back i go back to that all the time but it's the vertical it's the cross it's vertical with god horizontal with men verse 12 do not be like cain now what he's going to do he's mentioned we all know about cain and abel He's going to mention the worst case scenario of not loving someone is what? What's the worst thing you could do to somebody? It's to kill them, to murder them. That's the ultimate act of an absence of love, an act of hate. There is no greater, the, the hatred builds up to the point that you actually eliminate somebody. You just murder them. He says, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one, Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Now look, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He's going to build a case here now to show that when you're living a righteous life, there are going to be those who hate you. And the reason they hate you is because there's a, there's a jealousy. They hate. Because why? Uh, when you see somebody doing everything right, what does it do? It makes you feel inferior, doesn't it? It shouldn't. Unless you're doing wrong, then you need to repent, of course. But if somebody excels at something and you envy them, whoa, your heart is in the wrong place. should never. We should never look at something and feel like, well... <laughs> They're all, actually, what we're saying is they're a lot better than I am, and I hate them. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. We'll do a quick little review here. This, I, I, I'll tell you, I would love to spend a couple years for us in Genesis. What a book. You talk about the book of beginnings. Everything in that, in that Genesis, that beginnings is, is here. For the rest of the Bible, it lays out the rest of this whole Bible, this whole story of God and us. So Genesis chapter 4. Now this is right after Adam and Eve sinned and they've been expelled from the garden. This is the next event. Okay, How long this has taken since they were expelled? We don't know exactly. And anyone who says they know exactly, well, <laughs> you know, it's... It's, it's kind of silent. It doesn't say, and after 13 years of being ex exiled, we don't want to add stuff that's not there. Okay, so we know that they were expelled from the garden, and now we go to this narrative. It says, Adam lay with his life, wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. So we have two brothers. Now Abel kept flocks 
and Cain worked the soil. So we, we get a little, little picture of these guys. They both have different vocations. One man is a farmer, and one man is a herdsman. Now, I'm going to mention this because there is a lot of controversy on why God re rejected Cain's offering. And we'll, we'll get to it, and I'll show you. And there's something more important than what type of offering it was. What we want to look at is why he did what he did and why Abel did what he did. It's not so much the, the ritual itself, the exact ritual they did, but where their hearts were. That's what we want to look at today. You know, if you want to debate about whether it's because it was a blood sacrifice or a vegetable sacrifice, we can do that, okay? But not now. Okay, but I'm happy to talk with you afterwards. Okay, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, just from the way this is written, and I'm using the NIV, it sounds like Cain took what he produced, and some will say, well, you know, Cain was coming with a works mentality because he worked the soil, so now he's gonna, it's going to be a, a works kind of thing. That, I'm not going to get into that. It says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Cain produced vegetables or whatever they, they grow over there, pomegranates or whatever. <laughs> it was, you know. I just hope he didn't bring Brussels sprouts. I'll be honest. I, if there were Brussels sprouts, I don't blame the Lord. Get these things out of here. What are you kidding? You know, this is... <laughs> I, do you know how we know we're going to be in heaven? I finally I had that revelation. There will be no Brussels sprouts. Actually, when you get to a place where you look around and you can't find one Brussels sprout... You've made it to heaven. Just so you know that. I just little insight there. Uh, took many years to. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Anyway, let's move on to the truth now. Okay. So what we're doing here is Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. He took what he produced and gave it to the Lord. Now I will mention this. Read the book of Leviticus. There are grain offerings. There are produce that they would bring. There would be fellowship offerings. They would make me these me meal cakes and they would offer them to God. So God would also accept at times whether or not he wanted a blood sacrifice here. I don't know for sure. I don't think anybody really does. We can kind of base it on that, well, the sac when Adam and Eve, what usually does is they say it wasn't a blood sacrifice because when Adam and Eve sinned, it says they were ashamed, they were guilty, and God made an atonement. He made for them these coverings out of animal skins. And how do you get animal skins? They have to be slaughtered. They have to be sacrificed. So this is why we get the idea that, you know, God would only accept this. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that uh, God was pleased with him. When we get to that point, you'll see. It doesn't say God was pleased because he gave a blood sacrifice. And Abel gave this, this offering from the ground. But anyway, I want us to see the motives behind it. But Abel brought fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flocks. And by the way, the fat portions were the ones that smelled so good. And the Bible describes it. Again, it has to be in anthropomorphic terms because we, God, is, God is so far above us. The only way we can think about God is in terms of, of men. Like it talks about the, 
the right hand of the Lord coming down on us, or the Lord's eyes sees us, and things like that. So it talks about that this, when Noah gave the sacrifices, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord when it rose. And so it's saying, but when he brought fat portions, he was giving the part that gave that good, pleasing aroma. And it says, and some of the firstborn of his flock, always the firstborn was considered this I first give whatever I have to God. It's like I'm giving God his portion first here. And the firstborn, it tells us. So it says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain his offering did not, he did not look with favor. So here, Cain gives this sacrifice, and God is pleased with it. Abel gives his sacrifice, and the Lord is not pleased with it. Now watch. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. You know, he was just, you could see it on. You ever see people who have that look in their eye and their face, and they're just this, he's, it's, it's very obvious. He's not hiding his feelings. They're, they're there, and he's angry. And I want you to see this. Look at the grace of God here. God goes to Cain and he says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now do you think God was looking going, he looks over at the archangel Michael and goes, hey Mike, why is Cain so upset? You think God doesn't know? I mean, you know, people are, why, why does God ask questions like that? Well, we'll look in a minute. Why is your face downcast? And then God says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? He's given him a second chance. He's saying, you didn't bring me a right offering here. But you know what? If you bring me the right offering in the right way, it'll be accepted. Here's the grace of God. Cain did it. And <clears throat> it goes on, he says, but if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. He, so here, God is coming to Cain, and he's saying, look, it wasn't good what you did, Cain, but you know what? If you do it again, you'll be accepted. But then he gives him that dire warning. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Cain, you're in a dangerous place. You are right now, because of your attitude, you are in a very dangerous place. Sin is right there. You're ready to, to give over to sin. He says, but you must master it. Well, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Wow. This is premeditated. This is not just a, a spur-of-the-moment passionate thing where he just... It's premeditated murder. Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, it's interesting. In the Hebrew, the word that says he killed him, it's actually the same term because there's different words for killing and murder. And the term that is written here is the same term that's used to slaughter an animal, 
by their throat. It's basically taking something sharp and cutting the jugular vein and killing. When they would slaughter an animal, they would sl slit their throat and let them bleed. And it says that Cain murdered his brother the way you would slaughter a sacrificial animal if you did, or an animal, and you'd, you'd cut the throat on him like that. Now, we might ask, well, why did, this, why did God refuse his sacrifice? And we have a commentary on it, and it's called the New Testament. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 4, it tells us why God refused his offering. Whether or not it's because of the issue of blood, this goes deeper than that. If you want to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, there is no better commentary on the Bible than the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary for itself. It clears it up. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. Do you see that? It says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Now, whether or not the sacrifice was better because it was a blood sacrifice, God isn't even... It's, he's going deeper than that. He's looking at and seeing that Abel did it by faith. And then it goes on. It says, by faith, speaking of Abel, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. It's the whole attitude of Abel. Abel, by faith, he had a relationship with God that was built on trust and faith and loving God. And when he gave that sacrifice, it was pleasing to God. Cain, on the other hand, did not sacrifice by faith. And you could say, well, it was the grain offering. Yes, but why did he, didn't he give then? If it was because of the sacrifice, why didn't he give a blood offering? Because he, he didn't care. It was his attitude. And that's what the book of Hebrews is really making clear here. It's their two attitudes. One gave his sacrifice and faith, and the other didn't. Now, we're not going to get through a whole portion today, and that's okay. We're basically, I'm just going to finish this section up here because I want to make the point now. If you look back in Genesis... Okay, I should have told you to keep your finger there. But this is good. It keeps you up a little bit. You know, you've got to move around a little bit before. You're not buying that, are you? No. Okay. Gee, I thought I'd get a better response the first time. I just, okay, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so here. <laughs> now watch. Then the Lord said to Cain, verse 9. Where is your brother Abel? Here we go, God asking questions again. Okay? Doesn't God know? Yeah, he knows. 
But what is he trying to do now with Cain? He's trying to get a confession from Cain. How can Cain ever be forgiven unless what's the what's the way to forgiveness? Confession and repentance. So what does God do? He says, Cain, where's your brother? Maybe at that point Cain would have broke and said, Oh God, you know, broke down and just said, Lord, I, I killed my brother. I murdered him like an animal. You know, God's trying to give him a chance. Again, the grace of, you know, you look through the pages of Scripture and people look in the Old Testament. Oh, you know, God allowed all these people to die and slaughtered and this and that. For some reason, we don't see the grace of God continually reaching out. And he said, where is your brother Abel? And what does Cain say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The hardness of his heart. He just murdered his brother. You think he'd be falling apart at that time, but that's that hard heart. He says, I don't know. He lies to God. I don't know. He says, am I his keeper? Wow. A hardness there. So then... The Lord says, what, you, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse. And it goes, but your brother's blood to me cries out from the ground. God knows. That's his way of saying, it's obvious you killed your brother. I saw it. But anyway, so why did Cain kill his brother? Because of jealousy. Let's go to John now. Back to John. First, first John. Nick, I'm going to need about six months. The way we're going. <laughs> Little inside joke. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so verse 12, he says, Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Look, and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was so envious of his brother because God is, is looking with favor, smiling upon Abel with his sacrifice. And Cain is rejected. So what does he do? What was his options? The Lord says, Cain, you have a chance to get it right. If you do, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? He says, Cain, just repent do the right thing and bring me an ac a sacrifice with a right heart. That's all. And you know what? It's all, it's all forgiven. But instead, he didn't want to repent. He didn't want to admit that he was wrong. He didn't want to. He'd rather focus and say, I'm not guilty. It's all my brother's fault. Where do we see that? In the Garden of Eden, right? We go back to the garden. You know, Adam, why'd you eat of the fruit of the tree? <laughs> oh, that woman you gave me, I couldn't resist. She showed me the fruit and I ate it. Eve, why did you listen to the serpent? Well, because he tempted me. You know, it's that serpent who's in the garden. It's his fault. It just goes on. Blaming. We have to be able to look at our hearts and admit when we fall short, when there is no love for someone, when our attitude is building towards somebody else. Because you know what? In every murderer, guaranteed, unless they're a complete uh, 
just a sociopath or it's a mental illness, which usually it isn't. There's very little of that usually. It's more, you know, sometimes we'll go, oh, somebody will shoot up a post office and they'll go, oh, that person's sick. And then you find out the story. No, they're not sick. They wanted to get a, a, a promotion, and they didn't get the promotion. And then the other employees were maybe ribbing them a little bit. Ah, you're still working with us, Joe. You know, and he's looking at them, and he's getting so angry. And he does. It's not always, it's not so much sickness lots of times as it is hatred that comes through. Are there cases of hate, uh, sickness? Sure, of course. Nothing is, you know, it's no absolute, I'm saying, but too many times we, and we do it with ourself. Instead of looking at me and saying, what am I doing wrong here? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to change? Instead of, oh, look at that person over there. You know, we'll transfer, we'll transfer that anger and guilt on the other person and we'll go after them. It's their fault. And that's what Cain did. Rather than just say, Lord, my heart wasn't right. I'm sorry. You think God would have forgave him? Absolutely. Then after he murdered his brother, that same hardness was there. He says, you know, I don't know. Instead of breaking down, confessing and repenting, you can't be forgiven unless you confess and repent. I mean, that's the two things that God requires. And it, it's, since I'm talking about that, this Saturday, <laughs> the men are meeting again, and I would love to see more guys come out. I mean, we have a nice core group of guys coming out now, but it's on Psalm 51, 8 o'clock in the prayer room Saturday morning. You're welcome to come. It's a whole series on repentance, and we're breaking down for the next couple months Psalm 51. So if you can make it, you know, if you're a regular, I encourage you to come. If you're an irregular, well, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> you know, if you don't come regular, you're an irregular. But if you're an irregular, we still want to welcome you. That's okay. You know, we'll put you in the special bin on the side there where the irregulars are. But uh, you are welcome to come. Anyway, so here's what happens. And look what he says when he says, And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And I am going to stop at this point. I was hoping to do the whole section, but I think this is an important part for us to look at. This is a good time. You know, a story like Cain and Abel is a great time for us to look at our hearts and ask ourselves, what's really going on in there? Do you have people right now? Christians. Do you have people right now who you really have animosity toward? Who you ha you're angry towards? Maybe even hate? Yeah, Christians do hate. It's wrong. It's not good. And what did Jesus say? He said, you have heard long ago that it was said, do not murder. And notice he says, you have heard because he's he's the teachings that they were getting from the rabbis were more just outwardly. As long as you don't murder somebody, you're okay. But Jesus says, no, but I tell you, anyone who is angry at his brother in his heart is a murderer. He's already committed murder. He's a murderer. He says, because why? Jesus talks about the heart's intent. It's not just our outward. It's not just 
Cain's offering, his outward offering, whether it was not blood sacrifice or not, God says at your heart, uh, in Jeremiah 17.10, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, uh, to reward a man according to his deeds. God looks at the heart. That's what he's interested in. Let's make sure our hearts are right, that there's love in our hearts. That's the mark of a Christian. If there's no love, you need to ask yourself, where am I at? And think about, if you do see it, what does God want us to do? He says, confess it, repent it. He'll probably make you want to pray for that person that you hate or really dislike. Because how can you continue to hate somebody when you're lifting up their name before the Lord? That's a hard one to do. You know, <laughs> you know you, if you don't like somebody, but you're praying for them, that's a way to soften your heart up. You know? But uh, that's the good part. There is forgiveness when we do. And we need to love. And like I said, uh, we didn't get halfway through today where I wanted to get, but that's okay. That's okay. I hope you got something out of this morning. Think about your relationships. Think about your relationship with God. And think about where is love in my life? And I encourage you, read the rest of the Scripture. Re read through 1 John. Read through it. You know, have an idea of it when you come to the sermon. You know what's happening. You know, we're going very slowly. I do eight, maybe today we did a couple of verses. You know, we, it all depends. So, anyway, let's uh, stand, if you would, please, with me. I'd like to uh, for have us... End on praise where we sing the doxology together and then I'll pray.